2: With Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode... That you could get quite similar mitochondrial adaptations from sprint training as you do from endurance training. People who are innately predisposed to running probably are more at risk. (laughs) Very few people do only one thing. And if they do, they're probably not optimal. Most people would be better off slowing down a little bit. The social, psychological side of the training program is very important.
1: Welcome back to the Science of Sport. My name is Mike Finch and as usual I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker and our second episode of season number two of the Science of Sport podcast or as we like to say the real Science of Sport (laughs) podcast because um, when we first loaded this up on our podcasting platform uh, just over a year ago we noticed there was one podcast called The Science of Sport which we were very disappointed that was already up and we had to call ourselves The Real just to differentiate. So if you are looking for our podcast make sure you type in The Real Science of Sport podcast but if you're listening to this you've already found us so don't worry too much about looking anywhere else. Um, I've just celebrated just a couple of days ago my 50th birthday. I'll tell you Ross who danced some good moves on the dance floor. I didn't realize he was such a good dancer and We're doing a podcast today a little bit about training and I kind of think it's a little bit selfish of me to kind of do this podcast now because I'm largely interested in how I can become a good athlete even though some might say my best years are behind me. So I guess selfishly I'm asking Ross to maybe tell me that my best years are still ahead of me as opposed to behind me but principally what we're going to be talking about today is the science of training. What's involved? Some of it's going to be quite broad strokes. We're going to be looking at things like like intensity levels and how those affect your performance, and we're going to use the example of John. So John is a a fictitious character who is very similar to my brother-in-law who works in our office with us here, Um, but we just—that's just a complete coincidence. John is training for his first marathon, and. Ross, we're going to we're going to kind of start this conversation talking about somebody, let's say he's done a couple of 5K fun, fun runs and park runs or whatever they are around the world. He's got a reasonable level of um, training. He's not particularly overweight. In fact, he's quite slim. He's done quite a lot of cycling in his life. And now he wants to run his first marathon. What does he need to know before he starts thinking about a training plan for, uh, for instance, a marathon?
2: Oh, broad question broad question it's, it's broad see, so we're, uh, we're gonna narrow it living down. living vicariously through this fictional john <laughs> is mike who, john is john is 34 though who, huh? for the listeners mike who struggled to blow out 50 candles on his cake the other <laughs> night i was worried that there would be a fire hazard in the venue um so maybe the lung function that comes from the training john will do will do you some good also <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah.
1: it's fine you had a-, it's a lot of candles 50 i tell you what when they spread spirul- it it was more the ability to be able to go from one side to the other and i think i think took three occasions to actually about 50 candles so yeah, yeah maybe there's a test if you can do you get to a point where the number of candles you can blow out because when you get to 80 that's tough on 80 year old lungs is, oh, there, would- is there a scientific
2: test you can do around <laughs> the number of candles versus your age interestingly <laughs> enough um The human the human body is remarkable in its adaptation to training, and we'll talk about that in this in this podcast. One of the few systems that doesn't change is the structure and function of your your lungs. yeah. So you know, like if you if you ever have a concern about asthma or or any other breathing difficulty, you can go for lung lung function tests. You know, they do these like loops and they measure. You've probably seen this test done on television. I've actually
1: done them before, and I remember them telling me that I slightly. Uh, what's the word I, in other words i don't accept exe- i don't expel the carbon dioxide very efficiently so i i hyperventilate yeah slightly. and that, yeah and,
2: and and there are various conditions emphysema and so on where yeah. you can't get rid of the air that you had and others where you can't get the air in like asthma and so on so but yeah, it's interesting that one of the few systems that isn't that adaptable to training is, the, is lung function. So everything else changes, metabolism and cardiovascular system and energy supply and thermoregulation, but that's one of the few that doesn't. So, your, so in your other words, prospect, the lungs, the lung, your ability, the size of your lungs yeah. is
1: relatively the same. In other words, you can't grow your lungs bigger.
2: Uh, Within the narrow constraints of saying in those forced flow volume type loop situations, you know that that maximal exhalation and so on doesn't change.
1: But my 50-year-old
2: lungs are not far off what
1: my 25-year-old lungs were in terms of function. uh,
2: When you are exercising, running a marathon, then of course your ability to use your lungs and to get oxygen from the air into the capillaries in the lungs, then into the blood and the carbon dioxide out in the other direction, of course, is better because okay. all the other things are changing around it but the structure of the the, the lungs doesn't really change much okay so um this, the anyway the point is that when you turn 80 and there are 30 additional candles you'd bea- <laughs> you'd better be fitter or that could be the last thing you ever try to out. there's a great line and I and
1: I, golfers will relate to this my dad is 79 and, he, and one of the great challenges in golf is can you shoot your score um as to your age so if you're a an 80 year old can you shoot an 80 and 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 so forth so one of the great sort of golfing challenges is to shoot your age over 18 holes which is
2: you have to do some pretty good golf to do that yeah the two equivalents to that are run your mass in a half marathon there we go in kilograms okay and run your age in a 10k there you go I would have thought I'm just making this up on the spot that's a nice challenge there you go so 50 minute ran 10k run
1: your, your age in a 10k
2: yeah so I'd
1: have to run a 50 minute 10k yeah yeah that would be a oh. that would be a proper challenge
2: yeah and an elite athlete at but 30. I could do it yeah I would if think I, if I trained yeah and then you're mass in a half marathon so that's for a 100 kilogram guy which is big that's a 140 that's quite oh, tough but anyway yeah Anyway let's, anyway, let's we're just putting it out there. Yeah. I've, okay, I've broad. Now avoided, strokes. I've now avoided talking about John. But the point was <laughs> that our lungs, our lungs might be overbuilt relative to what they need. So your static lung volumes and things don't really change with training. But obviously, your ability to use them and get oxygen into the and so on does improve. So what John needs to do is he needs to capitalize on this adaptation of physiology to get himself into a position and a condition where he can then run the forty two point one nine five case. So my approach to this always, and this is true whether you're an elite athlete or, John, trying to do your first marathon, is to understand from first principles working backwards what the challenges and the, and the requirements would be. So we can start by asking the simple question, what is performance? In sports, and obviously our focus is endurance here, so we'll talk about that ex- almost exclusively. Performance is the ability to avoid disturbances to homeostasis. Why? Because performance equals delaying fatigue. So what's homeostasis? So homeostasis is a word that implies balance within. So it's they talk about the internal milieu of the body. So you think about your body and all the systems that are being regulated without you needing to think about them, your oxygen levels, the carbon dioxide levels, your plasma pH, your osmolality, your body temperature, your blood pressure, all these different things in inside the muscles, how much ATP is in the muscles at any moment when you're exercising, especially, and your body is trying as much as possible to regulate that. When that fails, and you are exercising fatigue is the result. Yeah. So fatigue can be described as the loss of the ability to sustain a given work output. So whether that means uh, lifting a heavy weight and then eventually dropping it because your muscle just can't hold it up anymore, or whether it means running five minutes a K or three minutes a K for two hours or whatever the case is. At some point, your body says no, I can't do this anymore. That's fatigue. So you either drop off or stop. So John's sole objective is to change the point at which fatigue happens in his body. And he needs to get himself to the start line with some kind of training under his belt that will allow him to delay fatigue for the four hours, whatever it will be that he thinks it'll take him to run this race. So if you understand what performance is, the avoidance or the tolerance, whatever, of fatigue, and you understand that fatigue is the result of a loss of homeostasis, then we can start to identify certain physiologies, physiological attributes that he needs to address in the next, say, six months. Hmm. Now, that's where we can start getting into the major detail here. But broadly speaking… But
1: just just to take a step back, and I know I say this a lot in this podcast, how do you define, what is the action of fatigue…
2: In other words, what fails in fatigue? It depends on the context of fatigue. So when you go out and you run and it's 42 degrees Celsius while you're running, maybe you have to because it's Doha Marathon last year at the World Champs and you had no choice but to run a marathon in those conditions or it's middle of the day and that's the only time you have. Mm -hmm. The fatigue that you will experience on that day is quite different to the fatigue that you would experience if you are at altitude of 3000 meters trying to run, which in turn is different to the fatigue that you experience running an interval session on the track of, say, 10 400s or doing a, a watt bike, for instance, session where you're going to ride three minutes at a high intensity or so on. Yeah. So fatigue is very contextual and it depends on the intensity and the duration and the environmental conditions under which you're training. So broadly speaking, if fatigue is the loss of homeostasis, then it can happen in any one of those systems. So is it running out of glycogen? That could be the scenario when you are running a marathon. I mean, you would have seen, everyone's heard of the concept of hitting the wall, yeah, the, the old bonking concept, where your muscle glycogen levels and your blood sugar levels drop because you basically run out of the substrate that you needed to provide the energy. So now, that's no, not... In other words, there's not enough energy available to make the muscles work. That's not happening when you go and run for 15 minutes. It's impossible. You have enough to do that. On the other hand, running as hard as you can for, say, 10 to 15 minutes is likely to cause metabolic changes in the muscle. The pH drops, the ATP levels may decline, the lactate levels go up, calcium levels, potassium levels, they start to change. And ultimately, the rate at which you give your muscles the energy they need isn't sufficient to meet the demand so then what causes fatigue is quite different so there's no single answer to what causes fatigue eventually what happens is that your body your brain under regulation of your brain simply fails to activate the muscle Uh, you have that muscle there but your signals from the brain change or are reduced and you therefore fail to activate the muscle but plus plus and let me not oversimplify this you also have changes at the level of the muscle. And that's why physiologists grapple with this issue of central fatigue, where the fatigue is the result of something changing at the level of your brain, as in your motor cortex can't send the signals or doesn't send the signals anymore, versus peripheral fatigue, where you actually have a problem at the level of the muscle. And there's a guy called Les Ansley, who used to be here in Cape Town and has since moved to the UK. They did a really neat study where they showed that the higher the intensity of exercise, the more likely there is to be a peripheral component to that fatigue. But it's never all or nothing. So it's never that your muscle fails, or your central nervous system fails, there's always a degree of change, it's a spectrum. But generally speaking, high intensity, short exercise affects muscle, low intensity, longer exercise is regulated more by the brain. So the fatigue manifests in a slightly different way, if that makes sense. So I mean, is that some of the theories around the governor theory of the mind? Exactly. In other words, the mind is what
1: controls the effort. And once the body is put into a point of danger, the exactly. mind says, OK, we're not going any further than this. But actually, physically, you are capable of more than that, what the mind allows you to do. Exactly. Is, so, that, is that proven? I mean, is that
2: uh, understood as a absolute fact? no but but it's it's probably unprovable because i don't know that you can ever test it to its extreme in a in a lab type setting but the the premise of that theory is that your brain is gathering information from all these homeostatic systems so blood pressure how much energy do i have available how hot am i what's the temperature outside because it's not just about how hot the body is it's also it must have some ability to predict or forecast how hot the environment is because the balance between the two is what's going to cause the problem, right? Yeah, what's the oxygen level? What's the carbon dioxide level, the pH level, not only of the muscle cell, but potentially the blood, because that's how it gets to affect the brain. So all these systems, and I've only listed six or seven of them, There could be many, many times more than that, are feeding back information to the brain. The brain is then contextualizing and interpreting those in the context of the task. And then changing or defending increasing decreasing how much muscle can be activated because on a hot day if you don't slow down you will overheat and so the brain makes this prediction because the body gets to a temperature where it says if you go any harder than this you're going to have some sort of heat stroke but it does that before you get there right so if it's 35 degrees celsius and you go out at the same pace you normally would run at within 25 minutes you're hitting 40 degrees yeah and at that point we know it's pretty much lights out you know when you see these uh these which is a protective mechanism of the body exactly so that's that's a protective mechanism but when you are pacing yourself you 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 try to avoid reaching that point in the first instance right yeah so you can almost for listeners you can imagine take a piece of paper out and, and put a circle where you are now anywhere on that piece of paper now as you go as you exercise that point changes your heart rate's going up your Ventilation is rising. Your body temperature is going up. You're depleting your body's energy stores. Your ATP levels might be challenged, and the body has to defend them. And eventually, they go up, 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 and they cross a line. And above that line, you can write, "Here be dragons." <laughs> That's where you <laughs> want to avoid getting to. And the brain is trying to pace you in order to avoid getting to that point. That was the fundamental concept of the of the central governor theory, um, which I eventually did my PhD on. We called it anticipatory regulation. So because the governor, it made it sound like a black box, and it's actually too complex to be a black box. It wasn't like there was a distinct location in the brain where this little machinery existed to do all this. It involved everything, it involved motivation, psychology, thermoregulatory centers in the hypothalamus, involved the motor cortex, it involved conscious thoughts, it involved Mm. memory, hippocampus had to be involved. And so it's it's too complex to just say, oh, tritely it's been proven. But I think it's logical, and you see it happen. Okay, so let's talk about how these different energy systems work. John's marathon. All right, so he's got some basic level of fitness. Where does he he start? Right, so with the aforementioned concept in mind is that John is trying to perform by avoiding fatigue, which is the failure of homeostasis. He needs to understand what are the requirements of running a marathon. Now, the main thing... When John first goes and tries to run for 10 kilometers and he's, he's only fit enough to run five or six presently, he's going to struggle in the last couple. The reason he's struggling is because the stress of exercise, that exercise challenge overwhelms his body's capacity to defend homeostasis. Where? Energy supply, so in other words, he can't get sufficient energy substrates to the muscle to power the muscle contraction and potentially oxygen delivery. Yeah. As he then gets fitter, what is happening is his body's adapting to that stress by all these fascinating amazing molecular mechanisms and pathways and he is quite literally making more factories with which his body can produce energy. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the demand has gone up and so his supply must go up. And the body's supply of energy is dictated in large part for him a marathon an aspirant marathon runner how many mitochondria exist in the muscle cells. So you've seen this word I'm sure. Yeah. I always talk about it in articles and I say they're the powerhouses of the cells. Yeah. The mitochondria is a little organelle in which the energy for the body is produced, most of it, via what are called the oxidative means. So that means involving oxygen. Okay. And with training, and this was only really shown in the last sort of 50, 60 years, the stress of training causes our bodies to produce more of these mitochondria. The result of that is that we can now generate more ATP. And ATP is our body's currency for energy supply to the muscle. What does it stand for? Adenosine triphosphate. So it's an adenosine molecule with three phosphates. And what happens is, chemically, is every time you take one of those phosphates off, it gives off energy. And that's what your muscle needs in order for it to constantly contract and recover and relax, contract, relax, contract, relax. It's a, It costs energy. And our body pays for that cost with ATP. The problem is that ATP has to be regenerated. And if you don't have sufficient mitochondria, then you can't generate it quickly enough. Right. right. So think of the mitochondria as a factory printing money. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so what's happening in John as he gets fitter, as he stresses his body slightly more each time, is his body's literally making more mitochondria. Therefore, his body can make more ATP. And he can deliver energy to his muscles via these oxidative pathways. And just, I mean,
1: just, I know I'm kind of really drilling down here, but when you say this phosphate is produced, and it, it so that gets delivered to the muscle, that then makes the muscle contract. In other words, where is the energy needed? It's already the there. Energy so
2: when the muscle contracts, and this is called it's called the stretch shortening. Uh, sorry, not to stress shortening cycle, that's something else with the tendons. It's called the cross-bridge cycling. Right. And so your muscle is made up of these little filaments and they in turn are made up of actin and myosin, which are the two proteins that really do the business for the muscle. Yeah. And the actin, the myosin grabs onto the actin and then it, it's, it's called a power stroke. It pulls it and that's how muscle shortens and contracts. Okay. Yeah. In order for that action to occur and for the myosin to let go of the actin, it needs ATP. And so okay. the ATP if anything, it helps the, the cross-bridges unhook, um, which is why when people die and they, their metabolism ceases, they get rigor mortis. Mm. That's because your body fails. It suddenly stops producing this ATP. And all of a sudden, your muscles are permanently contracted. And so that's, where, that's really where it's needed. And they reckon that about 70% of your ATP is used by these myosin. Um, they're called myosin ATPases. It's an enzyme mm. that exists with this myosin and so that's what's happening so the moment your brain sends a signal to your muscle to contract this myosin and actin interaction occurs it costs atp used at the myosin heads and that has to then be replaced and it's replaced through metabolism biochemistry right that that metabolism involves fats carbs proteins but they work at different rates, and they provide different amounts. And so when you exercise at a high- Are they providing to the mitochondria? Yes, eventually, in in most instances. So this is where it gets a little subtly different. So we have, broadly speaking, let's leave proteins aside for now. Carbs and fats, we've got two stores of each. We have carbs in our liver, and we have carbs in our muscle. That's muscle glycogen and liver glycogen. Yeah. We have fats in our muscle. So for those of you don't know, and I know that it sounds like really simplistic for you, Ross, but carbs are glycogen. Yeah, so we, yeah. we ingest them. Uh, they right. are stored as glycogen. So they're packaged as uh, glycogen. So glucose, many glucose molecules joined together make up glycogen. That's then packaged inside muscle cells and um, the liver. Yeah, so That's where it's stored. So the, think of them as fuel tanks. You know, In right. the same way that a car has got its tank, we have four. So we've got liver glycogen, muscle glycogen, then we've got intramuscular triglycerides, so that's fat inside the muscle, and then we've got adipose tissue, which is fat not inside the muscle. That's the one most people have a problem that's with. That's the bit that I can see <laughs> on me. Exactly. <laughs> so so we've got two inside, two outside. So the two outside need transport, so we've got to get that liver glycogen from the liver to the muscles. We've got to get those fatty acids is what makes up triglycerides or triacylglycerols from the adipose tissue to the muscle. So that's a whole process by itself. But inside the muscle, we have muscle glycogen and muscle triglycerides, which can be broken down. And the the long and short of this biochemistry is once you start breaking down uh, glucose, glycogen, fatty acids, and so on, Eventually, you want it to be oxidized—is the word they use chemically—in the mitochondria, because that's the process that eventually produces the ATPs. And all of those things are oxidized at a different rate, right? And so sometimes that's what you're saying and sometimes not oxidized. So sometimes it, sometimes we don't have the oxygen, and we need the energy at a high rate. And what happens then is that we use carbohydrates independent of oxygen. So this is called non oxidative. Some people may have seen this referred to as anaerobic. These days in physiology, they'll talk about it being non oxidative. And what happens there is that those glucose or glycogen molecules get broken down themselves, they end up forming pyruvate, which is converted to the one everyone knows, lactate. Right now, that's a that's a short term solution to the problem. Because remember, the problem was the muscle needs ATP. Right. That process, glycogen to lactate, produces some ATP, but it produces other downsides for the muscle, like a drop in the pH, um, and that's eventually, or an increase in the hydrogen ion levels, so basically. Lactate is that stuff you feel that, that burn in your legs when you're <laughs> pushing the pace, that's but a, in fact it's a, it's a fuel. It's not even that thing you feel in your legs. I, to this point, there's still uncertainty about what that burn is created by. Okay. It could be the pH, which isn't caused by the lactate. So this is where it gets, but, but you're right, that's what yeah. everyone thought initially was that lactate so? was the poison. And that's because I think it was in the 1930s, might have been the 20s, but it's, it's definitely within the last 100 years. The only way they could study this was they could take a frog muscle outside the body of the frogs and now they've excised this muscle and they would stimulate it to contract and they'd measure what would happen. And sure enough, they found lactate levels went up as the muscle got tired and they deduced that lactate was the thing causing that fatigue. Right. But as the technology got better and they got more equipment and more tools to be able to look at this lactate and what was happening, they discovered that actually it's not the bad guy. Um, and in fact, there's now a thing called the lactate shuttle which is where your body is so adaptable that it actually uses the lactate reduced by the muscles and that lactate is energy for other organs in the body and potentially even other muscles. Sure. So it's actually a fuel source. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So it's not it got a bad rap. And I mean I remember even growing up and reading magazines and saying so lactate was named as the culprit and it wasn't. So when you see when you hear commentators saying, Oh, fighting the lactate, that uh, that lactate is actually <laughs> it's it's kind of like it's kind of like the, the body's metabolism wants to go down the highway, but sometimes the highway isn't available to it. And so then it's got to take the side roads. <laughs> so and it's that, enormously adaptable yeah, yeah, yeah depending exactly, on yeah. the stress being put on it. Right. right. So it's a side road and your body can say, all right, I'm going to produce a bit of lactate and I'm going to accept the hydrogen ions and the problems that this might cause me as long as I can keep giving my body enough energy for the short period that I need it for. Yeah. And this is why when we exercise at a high intensity this is where a lot of our energy will come from, is the non-oxidative use of glycogen in the muscle cell. Does that make sense? Yeah. What we want though, because that's not sustainable, that's a couple minutes worth before you actually just have to stop because of that burn, which is probably caused by the way by hydrogen ions, phosphate, calcium, potassium, all the things happening at the level of the muscle. For John to get through the marathon, he can't afford for that to be his situation at 5Ks. He's finished. <laughs> no chance. Yes. So, so that's, he's that's, that's a, the
1: guy doing the 800 or the 400 on the track where you see exactly. them tying
2: up in the last 50. Exactly. Because the muscles have stopped working and they're fighting through soup or not soup. Well, it, looks like, it looks like that. Exactly that. Yeah. And that's why one of the most interesting studies I thought basic study was we just looked at the pacing. And we found that from 1500s onwards, you speed up at the end. In an 800, you're just getting slower and slower, and yeah. in a 400, it's the same. And that's because there's a there are there are changes at the level of the muscle. And anyone who says that it's all in the brain is is denying the reality that you can see in front of you that this guy wants to speed up. His gold medal is disappearing, and he cannot do it. Yeah. No matter how motivated he is, because the muscles just are the muscles have lost the ability to produce the same force. Yeah. And that's as a consequence of all this biochemistry that's happening in conjunction with this non-oxidative metabolism, right? So John the Marathoner... John needs to avoid that situation. Avoiding that at all costs. As I said, he cannot afford for that to be his situation. At the 21K mark, he's done. He might as well sit down the side of the road and wait for the broom wagon. (laughs) So so what he's doing with training is he is increasing his capacity for oxidative uh, metabolism so that the bottleneck never happens. Right. So in other words, he's making that highway so wide... That he never needs to take the side road. Does that? Does this? I'm I'm, I'm running with right. this analogy now, but I'm going to go with it. I like it. So there's like a bottle. There's a bottleneck there, where if if the rate at which you produce ATP isn't large enough, your body says, "Right, let's go Plan B." And lactate, lactate. Yeah. dehydrogenase from blah blah blah, and we and we go that way. What John needs is so many mitochondria that he can actually stay on the highway, and that's what aerobic or oxidative type training does for him so when he trains that's what these low intensity sessions were found to do uh, again they found it on mice 50 odd years ago where if they if they overloaded them in these endurance type sessions their mitochondrial mass went up 60 percent so you, you literally double how much of this you can do this oxidative Phosphorylation. Where do, where do the mitochondria sit? Are they all over your body? In the cells inside the muscles, okay. and, yeah. and and they're so not other, in the mu- and,
1: they're in the muscles.
2: Yeah, no, in this context, They will be in other cells also because any cell that needs energy is there. And it's but a this... density of mitochondria.
1: So, in other words, when you right. look at a piece of muscle in the cell, you can say there is more mitochondria in exactly. this muscle sample versus when you do a muscle biopsy, you can see them.
2: Can you see that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Uh-huh. So, so and and they, so they in highly the... trained athletes, you would see a lot of mitochondria. Yes, and you measure the mitochondrial mass. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, they can measure the DNA, wow. but then the thing that really makes the difference functionally are the enzymes. So, the, if the mitochondria are the factories printing your body's money, <laughs> as they yeah. as they are, then the enzymes are the the workers that do that. You know, they they're on the conveyor belt that that, that passes the energy molecules down them. So, what happens is glycogen and free fatty acids are oxidized, they end up as acetyl-CoA's or acyl-CoA's, um, don't worry about the <laughs> meanings and stuff. <laughs> I'll and remember then that. those are passed along a series in, a, in what's called an electron, sorry, they form something called NADH and that's then passed along a series of electron carriers and every step of that produces its ATP. So the enzymes in the mitochondria, the citrate synthases and those sorts of enzymes, they're the ones that go up with training and that's measurable and there's plenty of studies now. That show that endurance training increases the enzyme activity. So could you? I mean, in theory, and I love the way we always digress
1: on this podcast. it's one, one of our signatures. But if you were a scientist and you took a muscle biopsy of a Iliad Kipchoge versus me, for instance, you would be able to see, without knowing who we were, who was the more efficient athlete just by.
2: Yeah, and there'd be, that, other, there'd be other differences as well. I mean, yeah. the, the, the the fatty stores in your muscle will be different from his and. Mm. The the yeah, so but the number of mitochondria that he has, the phosphates there, you know, will his, all be his enzyme activity must be enormously high. Yeah, same mm. with those Ironman triathletes. I mean, mm. so so the end result of this, by the way, is that when you increase these mitochondrial densities and enzyme activities, your body now has a capacity to oxidize, is the word, or to use fat and carb at much higher rates than before, and in particular fats. And so you become better at using fats as a source of fuel. So an an elite athlete is a fat-adapted person because they are able to take fat molecules, free fatty acids, and generate energy off it more effectively than someone who's not elite. So one of the things that will change in John, and pretty quickly, by the way, like within the first few weeks of training, this increase already starts to happen, and human beings can increase their mitochondrial mass by 50 60%, other Mm -hmm. animals slightly more. A lot depends on how inactive they are. If you take a human who's completely inactive you can double it within a few months of training and so is that's it the one right of the, kind of training or any training so here's where it gets really interesting and, and you would have in this your, is the nub of this conversation and and you would have come across this in your um editing time with runners world was there was yeah. a phase about a decade ago now called high intensity interval training there was a series of studies which showed that you could get Quite similar mitochondrial adaptations from sprint training as you do from endurance training. And the reason this is the case, because it's true, is because when this, the signal to make the mitochondria, you know, it's the thing that tells the body that there's an increased demand, the stimulus. Exactly. Very good. <laughs> Thank Very you. Good. Uh, is low energy availability in the cell plus calcium. Right. So you think about it, when you activate your muscles, when those muscles are contracting, they're involving calcium, and they're using ATP. So your what's called your ATP to your AMP ratio goes down, you have more AMP, less ATP, right. you have calcium, those two things are the signals that cause this mitochondrial biogenesis is what it's called. right? And it turns out that high intensity sprint training causes the same signals that endurance training does. So there was one famous study, I think by Berger Master, I hope I haven't messed his cinema, 2006 was the first one, where they made people come in and do literally 20 minutes of exercise. And it was 30 seconds of flat-out sprinting followed by a few minutes rest times seven. Right. 20 minutes. Yeah. And another group was doing the typical 30 minutes of low intensity, you know, 60% of max type training for the same number of days. And they found but over that a long period, that, that low intensity stuff, or yeah, the like, same amount of time. 30 minutes per day. Right. And I think they tested them, say, over a few weeks, maybe a month. Right. Yeah. At the end of the training period, they found that the two groups had similar increases or changes in their mitochondrial enzyme activity. And so, so there was there much was the excitement. High, the high intensity stuff, just to clarify, the high intensity stuff is a shorter duration yeah. but still
1: producing the same amount of mitochondrial activity to the longer, slower yes. training.
2: Yeah. So then the, right. the, the conclusion right. of that paper is that that is that this mitochondrial biogenesis is activated by the same uh, sorry, it's activated similarly in two different Mac pathways or two different types of training. And that gave a lot of momentum to high intensity interval training because people said, well, why do 45 minutes a day if you can do 15 minutes a day and right. just go really, really hard? There are, there are practical issues with that because... That was my next question. Because um, <laughs> you take someone like, let's take our, our fictional John, not so fictional John, like I'm not going to suggest ever that John must go out and now sprint for 20 seconds at a time as, as fast as he can right? Uh, because that's a shortcut to all kinds of other problems. And ultimately, come back to our original framework is what is performance? It's delaying fatigue. What is fatigue? Homeostasis. John's not learning how to deal with a marathon by sprinting. He might be getting the same molecular benefits, but that's not directly transferable, right? Because at some point in that marathon, he's going to be encountering the 30k mark, where he's going to have to use fat and he's running potentially lower on glycogen. His tendons and muscles have now landed I don't know, fifteen thousand times each in the last yeah. <laughs> in the last two hours, and that's the, you're not you're not getting ready for that by sprinting for twenty minutes every second day. Yeah. So th- there's a specificity of training that you can't overlook. But what was interesting is that you do get the same molecular signals from going as fast as possible as from going long and long and slow. So I've got this theory, and I'm going to throw this at you because I often get this question as as the editor
1: of Runners World. A lot of people have never run at all say to me how do I start running doing a 20 minute run after a while and we developed a program a couple of years ago which was basically from the couch to a 5k and the initial plan was to do a run walk mechanism where you would walk for four minutes run for one and eventually you would go walking for two and running for three and eventually four, one and eventually 20 minutes the idea was that you would run slower and you your body would adapt to this process as a consequence of that, over the last couple of years, I've kind of changed my mind about it through my own experience. I've gone through phases when I've been off training for a while, trying to get back into running. And what I've found is if I go and do a training session where I'm running a little bit harder and then walking rest breaks in between, it, 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 first of all, it feels better to run quicker than just plodding along like you would do if you were starting a running program. But somehow there's, I seem to get fitter better and i get fitted much quicker that way even though i'm probably taking more walk breaks in between though that 5k so the old way was run a 5k and run it slowly at six minutes a k now i'm saying the overall speed might be six minutes a k but i'm sometimes running five minutes a k for 300 meters yeah is there some base scientific basis to support that that might not be a bad option for somebody who might not have
2: done any exercise at all yeah for sure so Anyone who hasn't run much before, like is always better off with the rest, uh, with walk run protocols. We did a PhD study, the guys just submitted it recently and we took a bunch of novices through 10 weeks to 10 Ks. In the first three or four weeks, you're walking more than you run because you have to give the body time, particularly in running, to load and adapt to load. So like we mentioned the… And this is is musculoskeletal load. Yeah, so we've already spoken. So we've spoken about mitochondrial biogenesis and how the biochemistry adapts to training. The tendons and the joints and the muscles adapt similarly. You load them and the bone density will go up. But if you load it too much, then the bone density actually isn't enough to deal with the load and you get stress fractures. Yeah. Or you'll get tendinosis or tendonitis, or you'll get muscle problems, plantar fascia issues, whatever. You p- take your pick from any one of, uh, I don't know, a dozen injuries mm-hmm. waiting for you if you don't manage the stress. So here's a question just on that. I know I'm interrupting
1: you, but what adapts? quicker. I, I, in my experience, your cardiovascular system adapts to fitness much quicker yeah. than your muscular musculoskeletal system. For so sure. what often happens with people that are reasonably fit is that they end up going too hard for Correct. their muscles and their skeleton to yes. survive that's why beginner runners often get injured
2: quickly yes so that's that's absolutely the case um which is why people who are innately predisposed to running probably are more at risk yeah and people from a from a biochemical cardiovascular point of view because they are the ones who get better quicker and they might struggle for the first week but what, about two weeks in they're like i can handle eight k's yeah but actually you can your lungs and your heart can but your, your joints not so much. So that's an important so, part of John's process here because yes. there's
1: no doubt that John has got some cardiovascular ability here, but yeah. maybe not enough running
2: musculoskeletal background to survive going straight into a yeah. and 30 days a week. The other problem is that you're, when you're a candidate for, let's say, a stress fracture or tendinosis, that, that doesn't feel anything like the same thing that slows John down when he gets to a steep hill and he's trying to run too fast. Because yeah. that that pain <laughs> that pain is acute and it's instantaneous yeah. and it says to him stop right now. The stress fracture develops over the course of three or four weeks in the absence of any signal. The first sign of the stress fracture is often the stress fracture. Yeah, so it happens in, in silence. <laughs> I and know, I know this well. I, yeah, so do I. <laughs> and so that's that's the problem. So you often have to you often have to monitor and manage something that's not really there. You know, you're you you're get managing that, you risk. Get that dull ache. Yeah, Oof. you're managing risk as opposed to reality. Yeah. Um, so, so for those two reasons combined, adaptation speed and there's no, there's no instant feedback when it comes to an injury. I mean, is there any up. way of, 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 of taking note of that? In other words,
1: is there any way of saying, okay, I, I'm aware of my body not able to adapt to my cardiovascular fitness? How do you check that? I mean, it's, it's almost very, an, is it, is it impossible. It's, it's really, very isn't difficult, it? yeah. yeah.
2: And that's why rule of thumb, like 10% per week, become popular. Yeah, because at least they give people something to work off. And I asked on Twitter: Is
1: that still is that that solid? No, is a theory.
2: (laughs) No, not really. It's kind of like in the same burn as the ten thousand hour rule because it might work in a typical person, but like in a typical population, twenty percent of people don't fit that. That either either high or low. Can we give a guideline? Is it
1: possible to give a guideline?
2: In terms of percentage, it's so I know you hate this question. <laughs> and since in the last five ten minutes, we've gone towards like this training prescription, and even we'll come back to your your experience of like rather doing run walk run walk or fast run walk and so on. Mm. Some some people may do worse on that, you know. Yeah. Because if I if I know your history and I know a little bit of it, is that you are quite comfortable at high intensity type exercise. You play a little bit of squash, bit of racquetball. You're not. You're not. Unhappy when it's high intensity, short duration, which tells me that your physiology is probably suited to that kind of stress and stimulus. Yeah. There might be other people who can just go and go and go for ages and if I made them do fast, slow, fast, slow, they would, they would never run again right. because it would be so unpleasant and aversive for them to have to do anything faster whereas actually you quite like it. I'm the same as you, by the way. I, there's nothing worse than surviving for 35 minutes oh. when I'm unfit. Absolutely, I'd rather feel like a Kenyan, even though I'm not, and run faster just for a few moments. At, yeah, yeah, just for just for two light poles, and then I'll walk for two. <laughs> exactly, but like at least I don't feel like I'm just dragging together. a piano around the neighborhood with me. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the point I'm trying to get at here is that so many people are different. That rule of thumb and guidelines invariably. Discriminate against a lot of people, right? And so, if I said to you ten percent, and listeners, you may know the ten percent rule was don't increase volume by ten percent per week. So, if I did an hour this week, next week should be an hour and suppose literally six minutes, <laughs> which a is like seems unnecessarily micromanagey, <laughs> right. but the problem is some people wouldn't adapt and would get injured, and other people could have gone twenty percent more, and so trying to fit individuals from a population into a population average is invariably problematic, I think. Yeah. That said, what, what am I giving you as an alternative? Because I'm not being particularly helpful here. I think, and this is the first thing I would make John do, is keep a diary and okay. monitor his training and ask good questions of himself when he is training. Because as much as I said earlier that the first sign of an injury or a problem is the injury, that's not normally the case. Like, we like to think it is because we're too blind to pick up (laughs) the signals that might have been coming to begin with. Yeah. So for example, if John goes out and runs 45 minutes, the next morning he gets out of bed and he's achy and he's sore, and he goes for the run that next afternoon, and for the first two minutes, his calf muscle and his Achilles tendon feel quite tight. He warms up and it goes away and he thinks there's no problem. But that tightness, that soreness was potentially the first signal that he should have been paying attention to. And so if he is mindful enough and if he is alert enough to listen to those signals, then he can potentially get ahead of the problem before the time. And if there's no problem, then he's free to increase. If he picks up that problem, then he might need to slow down or back off or limit the distance. So by being mindful and by documenting what you feel, how you recovered, do you have any unusual aches or pains, I reckon you can probably get ahead of most of these issues before they happen. So that would be my, that would okay, be my so- advice. I'd rather you did that than try and follow some rule of thumb about 10% per week. So just, get, just to kind of pin that
1: down, that rate, that, in that diary entry every day, or whenever that person's training, or they're doing it every day, even when they're not training. Mm. What do they? What are they taking it? How, how do they feel physically? Well, you got it. You got it. Any okay. Niggles? So when you're
2: trying to, this is this is load management, right? Which yeah. is like the big thing, even in elite sport now. It's all about can you manage load, and, and recover and monitor recovery. So the first thing is, is is there's there's the extrinsic load, which is literally what did you do? So for cyclists, this is real easy. Ninety minutes at two hundred and five watts. Right. Heart rate, 146 beats per minute, right? So, so the extrinsic load is the power. But for a runner, 6.3 kilometers, 35 minutes. Pace this, profile, whatever, you know? Yeah. Then is how did your body adapt to that load or respond to that load? So now we're talking heart rates and, and rating of perceived exertion during the session. So heart rate, 145, rating of perceived exertion, 0 to 10. Mine was a 6, I don't know, or 5, whatever it was. And maybe a couple of comments or notes. Then the next thing you want to monitor with respect to training is your recovery. So sleep, how well do you feel when you wake up in the morning? And do you feel adequately recovered from that training session? Those are these are basic things. I mean, this is not rocket science. Yeah. But, and the reason sleep is important, by the way, is because there's this concept of overtraining where you load the body beyond what it's capable of and when that applies to the muscle and joint, then it causes injury. When it's done to the whole system, it causes neural, hormonal type changes and they eventually manifest as overtraining. You just feel dead. You're tired all the time. You just got no gas, no spark. One of the first signs that that's going to happen is a a disruption to your normal sleep patterns. So the the great irony is that when you're training too hard, you sleep worse. Okay. You'd think you'd be tired all the time, and you probably will be. But you don't. Re- you don't feel regenerated as a consequence of sleep.
1: That's so, monitoring I thought sleep, if you're
2: really tired and overtrained, you'd sleep a lot more. If you're in that, yeah. if you're in that re- balance where you're actually training at the right level and are able to recover, you you will go to sleep easily, and you will wake up the next morning and you will feel revitalized. Oh. But if you don't, then that's that's one of the f- earliest signs that in your mood state. Um, so if you're married and your husband or wife says to you, why are you so cranky all the time? Pay attention to that because that, they might be the first people to see your imminent problem developing. Sure, oh, fascinating. Um, so your profile of mood states. And there are now established questionnaires. Many sports teams will use them. It's called POMS, profile of mood states. Those are used to try and gauge in an in a objective manner whether a person's mood is changing because, again, it's recognized as an early indicator of overreaching, which then becomes overtraining. And that's what you want to avoid. And if you're not, again, this is one of those things, if, if you're not attuned to this stuff, your first performance consequence of overreaching and overtraining is what? You get worse. Yeah. So you, you, you try and do the same session. Maybe it's your weekly interval session, 10 400s, or it's on the bike, it's uh, 10 three-minute blocks, whatever it is. And you just, you, you, you can't hit the watts. Right. Your legs feel empty and you just feel like you're, you're spongy and there's, no, there's nothing in it, right? What's your response to that? Train harder. You see, so, or, or
1: you come up with a whole list of excuses. Oh, I didn't have my coffee this morning or my right. kid so, woke me up at 3. So you don't so, ever
2: blame your own body for that. Uh, so you're so subject to biases. Right. You find, you find rationalizations and excuses <laughs> and you end up ignoring the signal because you, are, you, 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 you overwhelm yourself with noise. Yeah. The whole point of monitoring training is to try and discern the signal from the noise. So if you are systematic about it, you free yourself from bias and you learn about yourself in a way that makes you more mindful and therefore better able to make the good decisions in the future. So the bad decision maker says, "I'm, I'm performing worse, I'll train harder. And he actually accelerates his decline, whereas someone who's wiser says, you know what, I'm training worse, haven't been sleeping all that well, I wake up feeling a bit achy, I actually need three days off. Yeah, and he, and, he, and he gets ahead of the problem because he's mindful and aware. So the, the first thing I would make John do is, is switch that on because John has told me that he doesn't know where to start and he doesn't have a good feeling for his own body. Let's learn that first. you know. And the great irony here, and I, I use the example often of when I was with the South African Sevens team, we used to monitor, they still do, monitor the players for these kinds of things. You know that after about three or four months, you don't need to monitor anymore because it becomes intuitive. And so the discipline of monitoring things teaches you about patterns. You start to recognize patterns. What did I do to perform well? What did I do to not perform well? I get injured. Can I discern the the pattern that led to that injury? But what our strength and conditioning coach eventually realized is he, he could actually pick up in the player's body language whether he was doing well or not whether he's recovering, whether he'd recovered from his transcontinental flight across eight time zones because he was disciplined in his monitoring. If he hadn't been monitoring them, he wouldn't have picked up the subtle stuff. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean this is interesting
1: so, because we, we're all, when we talk about training and talking to somebody like you who is you know, driven by data and heart rate and, and stuff that you can see in a piece of paper and probably evaluate quite easily, hmm. What you're saying is that your your own perceived exertion,
2: how you feel, is yeah. probably the number one reason you should be. That's the first thing you should be. Yeah, looking and it's at. the two things. It's the it's the perceived exertion during the session, and it's the perceived not exertion but the perceived level of recovery or residual latent fatigue the day after the training session, and those are the two things. That 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 perceived exertion tells you a lot, you know. And you can match it up with data. If you're if you're in IT and accounting and you like some spreadsheets and you fancy it, then go for it. But my goal would be to actually take you away from the data. But it's like, I always use the example, it's like long division. When You know when you're a kid, it's like you have to do long division at school and it's painful. You say, well, can't I just use a calculator? No, because you don't have a feel yet for how the numbers work. So you've got to do the, the boring, hard stuff, learn long division, because then one day when I give you a calculator, you'll have a feel and it'll right. be more powerful. So monitoring yourself and monitoring physiology, RPE, Potentially, heart rate and whatever else you want to, you want to monitor is useful because it's, it's a discipline that teaches you about yourself, makes you mindful of your own physiology, and eventually you might let it go. But you, if, you don't, yeah. if you don't give in to that discipline, you never learn enough to stand without it, you know? How
0: up?
1: okay so let's let's just define these different energy systems that uh we we talk about we we're talking aerobic and anaerobic there's a lot of talk about how much training and endurance sports we're talking cycling and running specifically in this podcast but it applies to lots of different sports some sports you need more anaerobic you need more speed there's I, I've spent most of my life involved in triathlon and cycling, both as an editor of magazines in that space, but also as a, as a triathlete myself and a cyclist. I've had a brother who is a professional triathlete. And my first access to sort of the science of training came, came from a guy called Phil Maffetone back in the early 90s. He wrote a, a really great book about heart rate monitor training. And he was kind of the first the first guy that did heart rate monitor training properly and he was the guy that coached Mark Allen to multiple Ironman titles and one of the theories that he had not theories but one of the, his teachings was that his athletes never did anything anaerobic they were always doing things aerobically so when you talk about anaerobic versus aerobic we all know what basically what that is aerobic is the is the easy below your ftp it's your you're using your aerobic systems which is your slower fat burning systems um when you go anaerobic you're, you're going into your glycogen systems and then that's kind of been adapted over the years. So Maffetone was all ana- all aerobic, never anaerobic, and he produced some outstanding Ironman-level athletes as a result of that. There's a move now towards the 80-20 principle. 80% of the stuff that you're doing is easy, 20% is hard. I've heard people talking about 90-10 and some people talking about like only one intensity session a week. What is the – where we are Where are we now with this? Um, is there is there a –
2: is there a number that we know for sure works? No, um, and where we are now with this is, is, as usual, on a pendulum that tends to swing from one extreme to the next, when no. actually the truth is a lot more complex and a lot more nuanced than that. Now, I don't know Maffetone specifically, I, I know the name and I've read one or two things, but I don't know the training model. I do know, for example, Lydiard was LSD, right, not that LSD, long, slow distance. And Lydiard was famous for putting his guys through these 150-mile or whatever it was, weeks, and doing this long distance. And he, when you read the way people… And obviously low-intensity long distance. Low-intensity right. long distance. Right. And when you read the way people would summarize or report on Lydiard they'd report that. Right. They didn't tell you that Lydiard at other times of the year would have his guys do these flying sprint 200s because that, <laughs> that didn't fit the simplistic uh, framing of Lydiard's model. Yeah. So Lidgett is known as a long, slow distance guy, but he actually had a pretty substantial element of really high-intensity sprint work. I mean, Peter Snell, I think, was his guy, and you don't run those miles without some serious sprint work as, as well, you know, those mile performances. Um, similarly, when I was young, I read a book by Peter Coe um, on Sebastian Coe's training, and I remember at the time, not at the time I was young, but I would read these articles about Coe versus Steve Ovette, And the media like to portray it like Ovette was this grafter who did these long miles, tempo runs, threshold stuff, Coe was doing these 50 meter sprints up a steep hill. And you get these, anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that you get these like reporting on these models that tends to actually simplify them and portray them as one thing or the other. And I don't know whether Maffetone is like that. But the the, the short answer to your question is the training is almost always on a spectrum. It's never in one or the other extreme. Very few people do only one thing, and if they do, they're probably not optimal, because the combination of training adaptations to endurance and high intensity is probably what causes the performance benefits that we're looking for. Whether it be for John or for Kipchoge or for Waitfornickak, <laughs> yeah. So just because a four hundred meter guy doesn't mean he can get away without endurance, because running a four hundred involves a substantial endurance component. It's not the same endurance as John's looking for, but it's there, right? Right. So there's always a blend of, of ingredients, those ingredients being training intensities. So you spoke about FTP, which is which is pretty cool because that's a concept many will understand. Maybe you can, I'll be the questioner this time, explain what you mean by <laughs> FTP. And just by the way, for listeners, one of the things that makes discussing training so difficult is that 10 people will see a concept and it will spawn three subtly different interpretation is the concept so one person's ftp may not necessarily be another's but what was yours okay so i'll, I'll try to give you my scientific theory and then my sort of
1: um, less scientific theory as far as i know ftp is when you're when you when you start burning lactate in other words you're moving into that lactate zone that's the kind of my science version of that and you'll have to correct me if i'm wrong on that one and my more theoretical side of me says that it's that point when you it's, if you're doing your 20-minute test on the bike, um, it's as hard as you can go for that. You're, you're, you're well into yeah. that. You're just short of that zone. So it's, it's right on the limit of your red zone
2: yes. over an yeah. hour. Yeah. So it's a sustainable power output that you can keep going at uncomfortably but manageably. Yes. For a prolonged period, right? It's almost like your zone three out of
1: five. Yeah, probably. Could. So it's it's the junk mile zone actually that a lot of people talk about. <laughs> even you're riding that Sunday ride and you're sitting there at kind of not flat out and not going
2: particularly easy, but it's like. Tempo. Yeah. So there's various versions of this, and in the literature in the last while, there's been quite interesting stuff on critical power and critical velocity, which is similarly defined. And again, you you listen. I've I've looked into a few of these, and I'll hear one person, an expert on it, say, "Critical power is the part which you can sustain for 30 to 60 minutes." (laughs) Thirty to 60 minutes is a big difference. Like the one, the ones are 10K, and the ones a half marathon. If you're an elite runner, so. Like, maybe we should narrow this down a little bit more. But anyway, this is the kind of concept. And you're right. So critical power or velocity or FTP, all subtly different ways of trying to quantify what is this exercise intensity that you can do for a long time. And if you go back to our earlier discussion. What's a long time? What's that number? I I, I genuinely don't know. Like, it depends who you listen to. 60 minutes. They they use an FTP 60. 60. That would right. be a 60-minute functional power. Critical velocity is probably slightly less than that, 45 minutes. But I, honestly, I find, it, I find it confusing to try and figure out what different people mean by these things. Yeah. But, but physiologically, I don't think this really matters to you while you're doing it, but it is that intensity that allows you to get most of your energy, you're right, from those oxidative stores without tapping into your body's side roads, <laughs> as it were to go back to my analogy so you're right lactate production is it it non-aerobic in other words it's not it's not non-anaerobic yes it's oxidative it's it's, it's always aerobic. it's it's, it's oxidative yes so there's this concept of of critical power watts and then there's a concept called watts prime w prime which is like the size of your battery and for any watt that you go above your critical power you start to use that battery up Right. right so Let's say for argument's sake, your critical power is 300. If you ride at 310 watts, you are eating into that battery at a rate of 10 watts. Right. And depending on the size of that battery, you will eventually deplete it and that will cause fatigue. So this is a model that I think is quite useful to, um, to understand performance with. So it's like FTP. So why are we talking about this? <laughs> Remind me. Was we were trying to understand where actually should John's, be. where John's training is going to be.
1: We're right. talking about that 80-20 principle. So yeah. So where where is is his training
2: based on these theories around FTP and intensity? So when you say eighty twenty, we're talking eighty percent in that really you know, easy zone.
1: Yeah. what well, they call it light and easy. In mm. other words, it's fully aerobic. Yeah, And to go back to Maffetone, he used to have a theory which I quite enjoyed and I, and I really kind of bought into that was he was 180 minus your age and people used to say, well, you know, 180 minus your age is a variable. Lots of people have different FTPs. But his theory was you were definitely going to be aerobic. If you were 180 minus your age, it
2: didn't matter how aerobic you were, mm. as long as you were aerobic. So it was an easy yeah, which measure. is which is not entirely true because I mentioned you know like the early studies looking at this mitochondrial biogenesis found that if that intensity wasn't large enough, you didn't get the benefit. So John for his marathon can't go out and run as slowly as possible. He's he has to he has to run fast enough to still get the benefit. But not so fast that he exposes himself to the risks of injury and overtraining, right? Right. So so it's So not, you can go too easy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Especially if he's trying to run a marathon. I mean, he's he's gotta get himself to like a level. If you don't overload the physiology, there's no stimulus for the physiology to adapt. Right. The tricky bit, the art of coaching and the science, is knowing how much to overload, when to overload, and how much recovery to give it. So the best thing, I've heard various examples, like the one is exercise is medicine, right? Uh, the other one is that training is a vaccine. I mean, you're basically vaccinating yourself against fatigue. <laughs>
0: yeah. But if
2: you give yourself too much of that vaccine, you end up fatigued or injured. Um, so you've got to understand, if exercise is medicine, what's the dose? Don't take 12 headache tablets, you only need two. Don't take 60 miles a week in week one, only take 10. <laughs> yeah. Plus there's the frequency Plus, there's the intensity. You know, don't take the 500 milligram tablet. Take the 100 milligram tablet. That's the equivalent. So, what's the equivalent in running is don't run at four minutes. Okay, run at five. So, yeah. th- there's balance between all these different variables. You know, for uh, duration, intensity, frequency, and so on. Type. So, for somebody doing an event like a marathon or an Ironman or an endurance-based event,
1: the kind of training that they would do in terms of their ratio is going to be is going to be defined by the the event that they're doing so we know that an endurance event you're going to do more endurance work is there any point then in doing anything intense if you're just if you're running a marathon or doing an ironman
2: yes because so we i think i hope that and and we we will try and tie this all together because i know we've we've basically put a whole bunch of theoretical concepts on the canvas but we'll join the dots and turn it into a picture by the time we finish here We've discussed previously that one of John's main goals is to increase his body's fat oxidation and carb oxidation capacities, so that he can produce more energy through oxidative pathways than glycolytic, which is the one that doesn't involve oxygen. So that that's coming from that low intensity stuff where you get the stimulus, you can go for long enough, it also comes from the high intensity. But what the high intensity training does is it improves, for example, your body's ability to buffer. Remember, when we go hard, high intensity, our pH intramuscular and outside drops, the body learns to buffer that so that it doesn't affect us as much. Uh, The calcium processes that are involved in muscle contraction are improved through high intensity training, nervous system coordination, I mean, you take a guy, me, I can't sprint to save my life anymore. I'm not coordinated enough. But with practice, I could relearn that coordination and that makes me faster. So there's a neuromuscular adaptation that happens. The, the capacity of those glycolytic enzymes, you know, the ones that convert glycogen to lactate to allow the side, the side road that I spoke of, those improve with high intensity training. So you can't neglect the high intensity work if your race demand ever involves high intensity work, in my opinion, because you're not training a key physiological component that's required, so that's why when they look at what elite athletes do, they do engage in those high intensity training sessions. Even they if necessary. they're endurance athletes,
1: like an Ironman athlete, when an Ironman athlete, with no matter you whether you're elite or an age grouper, you're probably going to spend you know even elite guys are spending eight hours out there they should probably never go anaerobic. No, they wouldn't would
2: Unless they're in a race um, yes, and there's, in a race. there's a need to surge and you need to increase that intensity, whether it's on the bike from 260 watts to 290 for five minutes, that might then require a little bit of uh, non-oxidative contributions. But you're right, the, If if you manage the race really well and you're not in a race against someone else, you don't necessarily need to. And that's why I think people get away with, with these more one-dimensional, let's call it, <laughs> In those Tra- training programs in those events.
1: So you could get away and maybe say that when, in those endurance events, in- intensity,
2: intervals, those sort of things don't really have a benefit. Yeah, you could. You could for okay. sure. But um, for John, I would still recommend that he do some higher-paced running because of the neuromuscular benefits, the coordination benefits that it gives him, a, it, it, I think it's enjoyable. I mean, if he hates it, obviously you, you change yeah. that. But I, like you, I, I enjoy running faster sometimes. And fast is relative. We're not going to ask John to run two fifty-five a k, but we might ask him to run four fifty-five a k i And I guess also,
1: if you have the odd inter- session when you're running a little bit faster than you would do at your marathon pace, it makes the marathon pace feel a bit easier, doesn't it? If it, you can, if you're running five yeah, minutes exactly. a k so, for a five k, and then you're running six minutes a k for your marathon, it. it, it
2: so what's the mechanism you're not you're not not maxing out when you're on pace so what's the mechanism there the mechanism there is coordination it's the muscle tendon nervous system that you're actually adapting through faster running and you're right that that effect is immediate like you go out and you do your first track workout of the year or the season and within a couple of days those easy runs just do feel different because you've learning movement patterns and neurological adaptations that make it better. Tell you what John needs to avoid though. And I think this is one of the key things and it came across so many of you brought this up in your responses to my tweet is the temptation to do all the training sessions a little bit too hard. And so you get neither the top nor the bottom, but you stick everything in the middle. So, you know, the old fairy is it a fairy tale? Goldilocks fable, whatever. Goldilocks? Goldilocks and the three bears. I've got a two-year-old, I might know this one. You should, <laughs> surely. So Goldilocks goes in there and the porridge is too hot, too cold, and then there's one just in the middle. Training doesn't work like that. Training's the anti-Goldilocks principle. Because I think a lot of people make the mistake of going too much in the middle, and they don't do the low and the hard. And so you get almost like a regression towards the mean. And so instead of A regression towards the... The mean, like basically to the middle. Let's not call it the mean. It's not a statistic. Just expand a bit on that. I'm not
1: quite sure I understand what you're saying. In other words, if you're in that middle zone, you're not developing, you're not training. No,
2: you are, are, but you're you're stressing the system considerably more than if you're in the low zone. Right. And considerably more often because it's happening all the time. So let's say John has got five days a week to run. Because he's got family commitments, he's got a wife and three kids. Um, If on those five days, every single one tends to be fairly hard but not too hard, John is compromising easy recovery days because he's never getting them and he's also compromising the higher intensity quality days that might make him a better runner. Ah, And he's doing everything kind of in the middle. He's diluting his training to the point where he's actually just running miles and miles and miles. Probably in the end, close to tempo pace. And that's why, so, so Stephen Seiler cons- conceptualized and popularized this concept of polarized training. Right. So now it's tried to do more at the poles. Either very easy, he calls it zone one, the green zone, or zone three, which is the red zone, but try to stay out of that yellow-orange bit in the middle. And he talks about zone three being that junk miles well, segment. He, his, out of the, his zone two, right? His zone two. In so the middle. Is, the middle's right, he's got three. Yeah. So if you've got right. five zones, you might have five zones because your Garmin or your Polar has five. <laughs> One and two easy. Right. Five hard, and then three crossing slightly into four is in the middle. And, again, it's not that you're not getting a benefit. It's just that the benefit there isn't, matching the cost right because it's always quite hard that's the guy who goes out every day is a seven or eight out of ten because he just likes to push it he's a type a and i'm i think i'm like this as well like if i don't actively force myself to go slower then i don't and i go harder and every single day is slightly slightly too hard and the consequence of that is that when you do actually want to go harder you have nothing in the tank and so your hard day has become too easy (laughs) And your easy days because sorry because your easy days are too hard and so you end up conglomerating in the middle yeah and that's I think the thing you want to avoid and so so, d- so many of you in your responses and I mean I, I can't possibly do justice to all your all your cool um all your cool suggestions yeah because this is uh, we're gonna we're gonna kind of go to the, our followers and, and
1: I know Ross asked a question about some of the training advice. So he's going to go through some of that stuff. And then we're going to
2: kind of tie this all together at the end. But go through some of those questions and we're going to critically analyze them. Yeah, so Jamie got in touch. Remember, I asked you for best and worst training advice you've ever received. And these are, these are op- often opposite sides of the same coin. So best advice, Jamie Langley. Keep your easy days easy and your hard days hard. Worst advice: you have to empty the tank in every session and screw yourself to the floor. If you're not, you're not working hard enough. So this is the same concept: is go easy some days. Um, uh, the okay, other one, go easy most days. Well, most most days, yeah. So like eighty percent of the best athletes in the world, sorry, the best athletes in the world do eighty percent of their training in that zone one. You know, that's five out of seven days a week. If they, if they can and do their, do their performances, then so can you. And, and before you continue, I think what's interesting is what is easy. Now, for
1: those of you that are confused about rate of perceived exertion, for my understanding, rate of perceived exertion, you've got a 1 to 10 scale, 10 being flat out, 1 being super easy. Easy is below 5 so it's yeah. that moment when you're kind of tickling along on, on your bike, you can talk quite comfortably to the person next to you, probably not feeling any kind of burn in your legs. I did that this morning. I rode with my son this morning. We had a very easy ride. I said to him, I'm feeling a bit tired from the weekend's festivities. I really want to enjoy it. And I felt we, we were always in control of the pace. I never yeah. felt like I was pushing myself particularly hard. Right. And... and one of the real big criticisms, I think, of the, you know, the Sunday ride, particularly in cycling, and I think this happens in running as well, is when you ride with others, there's always the tendency to go much harder than you should because understanding how easy easy is, easy is a lot easier than you think.
2: Yeah, so there's so many ways to do that. RPE for me is the best one Yeah. because it takes into account all the factors. If your two-year-old is up all night, um, You've got work stress because of your publishing deadlines. It's been particularly hot in Cape Town for the last while. And you are overexerted from trying to blow out 50 candles at the weekend. Your (laughs) Sunday morning ride is best judged on the gestalt, the whole package of RPE. Heart rate won't pick up four of those five things that are affecting you. RPE will. So, for me, always RPE is the best way to do it, as long as you are honest with yourself about what it feels. And this is coming from a scientist who likes yeah. to have things strapped to people's chests. Yeah, yeah. So, like, but I, again, for me, use the heart rate monitor for the first few months right. to contextualize your RPE because you'll learn about your body by doing it. You know, I was thinking about even in advance of this, I did track at school. And as a consequence of that, I can pace myself without a watch now. Yeah. Because all we did at the track was run 300s in 55 seconds or four hundreds seventy-four seconds or 90 seconds, whatever it was. And as a consequence, because I'm measuring time and distance, time and distance, time and distance, I learned how to pace myself. Yeah. Friends of mine who didn't do track at school have no clue. But if they if they spent some time with a watch and a distance, they would learn. Yeah. I wasn't learning consciously, but I learned. Yeah. And that's how it is with RPE and heart rate. You'll learn yeah. to calibrate. Your RPE. That's a great piece a, of advice. In a way that your great heart piece rate. Of advice. Yeah. So so that's so, so RPE for me is the best one. Heart rate. Yes, you can you can do it. The other one is what you experienced with your son. You you wrote slow enough to have a conversation. Conversational pace is easy. At the end of that session, if I'd said to you, Mike, got to do it again. You could do it. Yes, that's the other. That's the other that's test. One, another one. Yeah, that's the other test. Yeah. If 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 you finish that Sunday ride and I say go do it again and you say not a chance, then you've gone too hard. Yeah. So that's the that's the asset, Those three things, you know, conversation, RPE under five, and and that uh, is a v- that's
1: a very good way of measuring it because I can guarantee anybody listening to this podcast who's an amateur rider rides those Sunday rides with their mates probably 90% of the time they're going to be come home and they're knackered yeah. um, because they've gone too hard. So it is, it's great advice. And that's why my brother, I... when he was approached for athlete, he said that if you couldn't do the training session again, you had gone too hard. It was yeah, about yeah. being
2: consistent. And that's why the best thing we can do for John is we can find a group of people of, who run with him who are worse than he is. Yes. The worst yes. thing we can do. The worst thing we can do for John is get him into a group where he's the weakest link, because every single day he will bleed right. from the eyes. I just can't find anybody else. that's worse than me. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> so, so, so many of you. Um, Lee Savage had a good one. He says, "Best advice: You can't win training." Yeah, great one. Uh, you don't need to redline every session to improve. So that's that's kind of in line. Um, So many people measured consistency uh, in training, which is also important. I've always said physiology rewards consistency. So just give something always a little more than you think it needs. And this is particularly true, by the way, for people who are struggling to get over that initial hurdle of fitness. And they get despondent slightly too quickly. And I'm always so disappointed. I say to them, one more week and you would have turned the corner and you would have been able to capitalize. But instead, you didn't have enough patience. You changed it up. And and one of the things that we because we can now jump online anytime we want or buy any magazine or whatever it is we want we are so subject to rapid changes because they're always there in front of us right just be patient sometimes give it give it if you feel like stopping trust me give it one more week then then stop it is I mean I struggle with this knowing this you you think that within a you
1: think if you train hard for a month you're going to see a significant difference. But in my experience it's probably a three-month process to feel significantly better yeah but then there's almost a turning point in terms of weight loss in terms of your fitness where after three months of relatively consistent training there's a quick there's a suddenly a turn and then you you get to another level when you're doing that so I, I agree with that and I think that time to get fit is a lot longer than you think. Yeah, it's it's three
2: months. Exactly. And we've discussed, hopefully, for people like the anorex who like a bit of detail, that mitochondrial biogenesis is happening quickly. Your capillaries are getting more numerous, denser, opening up blood flow, angiogenesis is happening. So you're getting more blood vessels. Literally, you're building highways yeah. through your body to get the oxygen to the muscles and the carbon dioxide out and the energy to the muscles and so on. So that stuff's not happening overnight. You don't, you don't build Rome in a day, nor do you build yourself yeah. into a marathon in even two months. So give it time. Uh, Roger Homya polarize your training. That's exactly what we've said. Don't get stuck in that middle zone where everything is 7 or 8 out of 10. Nothing's 10, nothing's 3. Rather make 4 or 5 days a week, 3 to 5, and 1 day 9. I promise you you'll do better as a result. Yep. Um, Adrian Katz, build a solid base through consistency. That's what we've just been talking about. He says the worst advice he ever received is if you want to run fast, your training must be fast. See, that's the beauty of it. It doesn't need to be. Because John, who wants to run his marathon at 5 minutes 30 per K, does not have to train at 5.30 per K. Because when he trains at 6.30 per K, he's still getting that mitochondrial adaptation, that cardiovascular adaptation, his heart is getting stronger, his blood vessels are getting more numerous. Which means that yeah. once he tries to run 5.30, he's made the space or the capacity to do that. He didn't need to go 5.30. Why would he not wanna go 5.30? Because of injury risk and overtraining risk. Yeah. So you can get, you can get from A to B slower, but doesn't compromise the
1: journey. And potentially in that week of training, once he's built up some sort of base around his training, there's one run a week, which is maybe a ten K that's run at that ten that marathon pace. Yeah. So you get used to that five thirty pace.
2: Yes, exactly. Or, or or he does some intervals, some, some right. hill work because he realizes he's got a strength issue. So this is where we would work with John and we would say, Okay. John handles the the long, slow, easy runs. You know, maybe after two months of training, John is up to 90 minute long runs. Handles it, no worries. But when we send John to do a park run, we identify that he's not quite that strong there. And so now we say, all right, there's a spectrum. John does well on one end of the spectrum, not so much on the other. Let's spend six weeks working on that weakness. Not in a way that we undermine everything he's done. We still yeah. want to maintain where he's good, but we're going to focus on that. We're going to nudge him slightly towards that and see that's how we make the complete athlete is we we look at them and we say and this is this is true even for an elite athlete I mean if I was coaching an 800 meter runner for the world championships I'd be measuring top end speed I'd be measuring speed endurance I'd be measuring strength and power and if I see somewhere where he is weak relative to his peers that's the thing we focus on because if I fix that he's better as a consequence it's the same thing for you running your four hour marathon as it is for a 201 guy you know so yeah. yeah yeah um so many people worst advice they received is no pain no gain Um <laughs> which is everything our yeah. father's taught us yeah so so uh, let's see marcus nelson worst no pain no gain best have a purpose with every training session but there is i mean there is some benefit to pain in terms of intensity,
1: so yeah. when we talk about this polarisation, there's no doubt that throwing in a session a week or maybe two maximum of intensity work where there is pain involved is
2: does give you an advantage. So yeah. it's not all no pain, no gain, but there are certainly certain <laughs> sessions when you want a bit of pain. So this is where again it becomes it becomes a messaging issue because of course, and again, like you watch the Olympics this year, not a single person's winning that Olympic gold medal without some pain, a lot of pain yeah. in training. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a non-negotiable. You have to accept it. I was listening to an unbelievable interview on the Clean Sport Collective with Scott Farble, who's a 209 marathon runner, one of the favorites to qualify for the US marathon team. And he said his relationship with pain is an open one. He just accepts it and he allows it in and he doesn't fight it and he's just embraced that it it's part of the fun yeah. <laughs> of the marathon. So like there is pain, but Scott's not running 120 miles a week in pain. That's the key point. That's the key point. So you've got to pick those battles. And if you don't polarize your training, then you lose the ability to pick those battles and everything becomes mildly painful. And then when you really need to go to that place where it's painful, you don't have the capacity anymore because you've just permanently been simmering. You can no longer boil. And so you, you you have to learn like one day a week maybe, sometimes depending on the person, one day every two weeks is where you really go for it. But the rest of the time, you don't need the pain. You get the same physiological adaptations from easy training, which opens up the opportunities to get to pain when it's actually rewarding. I mean, the worst thing in the world is when you're in pain running slowly. Yes. So like, (laughs) if you're going to be in pain, just make sure you're going fast. Ian Cassidy, best learn to listen to your body, worst numbers are everything. So I hope, okay, we've we've bombarded you a lot of numbers here, but I hope you've understood that the numbers is part of the process, but it's not the outcome, it's not the objective. Um, pain is just weakness leaving the body, best and worst advice, according to Steve Adkins, which is a good one. Yeah. Um worst according to Nathan Townsend, anything with the word sweet spot in it. I don't think we've done that, have we? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the sweet spot. <laughs> Which
1: that, one? The, the sweet spot that I know is that one in that junk mile zone three that people
2: talk about. Yeah, Go and do lactate, a sweet spot session. Lactate just threshold below threshold. Yeah, so you just gotta run at a lactate threshold. In fact, you know, I was I was fifteen when I got my heart rate monitor. I begged my parents. I remember for Christmas as a fifteen-year-old they got this polar heart rate monitor and I was because I was like this right <laughs> I wasn't very really good but I That's was why you're a sports scientist <laughs> <laughs> and I remember going out and doing all these sessions and uploading this data and like I was trying to track and all this sort of stuff like the numbers and the sweet spot and I bought I bought a book that was on lactate threshold training and I swear for for six months all I did every session was in that threshold you know the sweet spot and I think I got better and then I got a lot worse yeah because uh, it's just not sustainable you know yeah. You, yeah. You, it it demands. It's hard enough to be taxing, and you can do it for long enough to be dangerous. Right. Yeah. So that's why you want to stay out of that, unless you're racing. In a race situation. Yeah, of course. That, but that would then, be fine. Yeah, and then you accept that you might go well above it. Correct. Yeah. But it's worth it, right? Cost right. benefit. That's yeah. the point. Yeah. Um, rest is a part of training. It's not avoiding training. Right. I mean, recovery. We haven't even spoken about recovery, but the good news is we've got Christy Ashwanden, who's written a book Ooh, looking on recovery, to and she's joining us on the podcast next time. So we'll have a whole episode dedicated to gimmicks, gadgets, and good recovery. So yep. we will come to that because it's absolutely true. Like the key is not necessarily who can train hardest; it's who can recover best. Yeah. Um, I got a message actually, not on Twitter, but it was a pretty good one. I thought um, from a contact in the running shoe world, <laughs> who, um, I guess, has discovered <laughs> us because of the shoe issue. And he said, uh, he says, the best advice I used to train with an 800 meter Olympian from New Zealand, he talked about what he learned from watching middle distance Kenyans like w- Wilson Kipkita. And the quote is, the slowest runners in the world are elite Kenyans the day after a workout. Right. And the point he's making is that these guys, when they go hard, they go. Yeah, and when it's a slow day, they shuffle. And so, that's true. Sure. Eh? We bought, we bought fifteen. It was about fifteen or sixteen elite Kenyans, maybe twenty, out to Cape Town in 2015 to test them in a lab, and I went running with them. And in these these are 27, 28 minute 10 guys and 61 half marathon guys, and I was fine. Yeah. In fact, it was slower than if I'd run on my own. Yeah. Now that is a. Yeah. Excellent example of what yeah. we are talking about: easy
1: runs. These guys are capable of running sub three minutes a k,
2: yeah.
1: and on, a, yeah. on an easy day, you can
2: run five and a half minutes a k with them. Yeah, I mean, which is was, our eight minutes a I was k, probably. There having a conversation. I mean, right. it was like a forty-five minute run. And granted, the last five minutes I got dropped because they ramped it up. Yeah. And we went from running six minutes for five thirty-six minutes a k to running three thirty a k in no time at all. Yeah. Um, because they wanted to sharpen their legs for the next day's testing. But the point is that they do. They really just shut it off, and they, they go slow when they have to, and that is what allows them to go hard when they need to.
1: I, I tell you while you're going through these things. The, the worst advice I ever got was somebody telling me that if you're following a training plan, you follow every single day, um, and you have to do that. But you've got to suffer through the bad days because that's what builds the your ability. And you know when you think about. All those many years ago, when I was in my 20s, I got that advice sort of following training plans, you know, and even on those bad days doing those sessions because the belief was no pain, no gain. Yeah, I had a lot of injury problems with that. And if I just listened to my body and accepted that maybe today I wasn't going to follow the training plan, I probably would have been a more successful yeah. athlete back then. So, it's
2: uh, what's that saying? Um, youth is wasted on the young, <laughs> yeah, something and, like that. Uh, and then its it's companion is something along the lines of like. I can't remember, but it's something to do with like experience. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's like funny how I also now my body's too old to cash the checks my brain wants to write, (laughs) but if I'd if I'd known them when I was twenty years younger, I would have been a much better runner. And I remember once hearing from a he was a high performance director at an Olympic committee, a pretty successful Olympic nation, and they had two very good sprinters who retired hundred meter guys. The year after they retired and they went off the program, so they weren't being obsessively monitored and coached and so on. They both ran lifetime PBs. Wow. And so he says to <laughs> wow. me, he said these these $100,000 investments and stuff that they made at these athletes, were actually yeah. slowing them down. Yeah. And the moment we took the pressure off them, they got faster. So there yeah. you go. Um, Amelia Boone, who we've actually had on this podcast, she spoke yes. to us last year, she replied, she said her best advice is take a few days off now to address a niggle is better than waiting weeks and months later. Yeah. Which is, again, comes back to that monitoring concept because – you learn what a niggle means through monitoring because yeah. often runners will run through niggles and have no issue and sometimes they'll go through aches and pains and get an issue. And I think the best ones, the best athletes and the best coaches are the ones who can tell those situations apart because some of it is about going through discomfort but yes. sometimes you must actually stop. Not many runners that don't have a niggle. Yeah, but but like you got to understand, like, what do I do about this? Is it serious or not? Yeah. And that's just pattern recognition that you gain through experience. And then Glenn, Glenn Cottingly is the one who actually tweeted about the training diary. And since we've been speaking about it quite a bit, I'll tell you exactly his wordings, because it was, as usual, quite good. Um, His wording was, uh, you won't see a benefit of a training diary for six months, which is true, but then the patterns will start to appear. And you'll have data to compare to when you make changes the longer you keep it the better and again my goal with a training diary is to actually get you off a training diary but we have to do it to earn that right yeah. and that's what i would have said you know, and so. there are so many platforms available now
1: striver and training picks and those sort of things that allow you to digitally Put these kind of things down and i think to some extent it's kind of using those training platforms to give yourself as much information as possible and um you know seeing what how did you there's always notes section of all your training sessions you should put down how did you feel on that day and and monitor it and you're right you yeah. get it you get a sense of when you should be taking the day off
2: yeah, yeah. brad burkhals got in touch best the best recovery you can get is proper sleep We'll talk about that with with Christy, so tune in next time. The worst was changing my diet to get a marginal gain of 1% when my balanced diet was already better than most athletes. Which is true, like don't fidget on the margins when you can actually change the fundamentals or consolidate the fundamentals, that's a key thing as well. I like the balanced diet too. (laughs) Uh, Vishal Patel, fitness is gained through recovery, yes. And number two, the 10% increase rule, that's his worst advice and we've covered that a little bit I think. There was a study actually recently showing that Roughly a third of runners get injured on ten percent. So ten percent might be too much. Yeah, for some people, right? And that's why I would much rather you understand principles of mindfulness and monitoring yourself than blind adherence to a, a to a rule. You know. So, yeah. um, what else? I mean, there were some there were some pretty funny ones. Someone, where was that <laughs> one? He got advice to run with one foot on the pavement, one foot off. <laughs> I it hope was, you can find that one. And thanks to all of you that did actually f-
1: um, reply to Ross on Twitter. You can actually follow us on SportsSciPod. And uh, even if you've got some advice post this podcast around what we've done here, we're really keen to always share that sort of advice on our Twitter feed. So you can follow us on Sports SciPod. And uh, there's
2: always a lot of discussion around our podcast on that. Yeah. Do you a find few, it? A few people said I haven't, but a couple of others is know the purpose of every run as the best advice. That's really important, you know, because mm. – Again, I'm someone who does, I, I do tend to go towards the middle, like I'll go out in a run and 5k. And I'm like let me just push this along. You see, it's because I don't have a purpose. Yeah. If I was training for an event, and I knew where this run fit in the big picture, I think I'd be much more likely to avoid that temptation. But because I'm actually just running to be outside and I love running, I find myself pulled towards going yeah. harder when I needn't. So purpose is very important because it if you understand the why, then I think you can deal with the how. Mm. So that's, that's why I'm finding an event is so important. I think to some extent because it gives you some sort of structure to your training. <laughs> yeah. Um, where was oh, I must find that one. Is Someone gonna... else's worst advice ever was to stick ice cubes up their butt to keep cool. That's not. <laughs> that's not necessary. You don't need to do that. Um, let me find that <laughs> other one. <laughs> that's gonna. I hope we retweeted that one on our Twitter feed
1: because I think that would be quite. The kind of advice. I mean, it would keep you cool, but maybe not always in the right area. (laughs) Um, Well, Ross is trying to find that. um, Just to remind you, we have a couple of great uh, podcasts coming up and uh, we do invite you to be... Part of them, we've got a great one as uh, Ross has just suggested with Christine Ashwanden, which is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. And uh, we're going to be talking about some of the fads around sport and a lot of the things that we've talked about in 2019. Uh, we'll be covering with Christine, and she certainly is going to be a very interesting interview. Ross, we're going to wrap up very shortly. Um, I am desperately trying to find the one about the pavement and running on the wrong side of the pavement but i'm pretty sure that it's probably got something to do with the curvature of the road and why you need to avoid the
2: angle of the road or something i've heard that before yeah so nate so this is nate Lurandi. i out have larandy lives in boulder actually hopefully i'll see you in uh, may when i'm there he's a coach and a former elite triathlete he says do the workout as intended rather than complain about it that's hardcore <laughs> yeah okay And then his worst advice is run with one foot on the curb and the other on the street to work on the push-off phase of the stride. I mean, that's just bizarre. I've never heard of that. Just repeat that. Run with one foot on the curb and the other foot off it in the street to work on the push-off phase of the stride. So, Nate, if you're listening to this, I think we need to get you on the podcast and get you
1: to explain that a bit because I'm not sure I understand that, but maybe there is some scientific basis. If he was an elite-level triathlete, I can imagine he knows a little bit uh, about no, training. So he maybe. said it was
2: the worst advice he ever got and he never followed it. So
1: Yeah, I'm just interested to know what, some, what the theory behind that was. Oh, yeah. So, Ross, to, to kind of wrap up a bit here, I mean, I think for those of you that are listening to this podcast, if you had to summarize like your five rules of training, mm. um, kind of give us Ross's five, Oof. not three. Gosh. Uh, is
0: it too
2: many? Five, six, ten? Well, I can make 20, but. 20 um, well, is too many because you've only got five minutes left in this podcast. So so, so the, the rules of training is like understand, the, the number one for, for me is understand the purpose of the session. Right. Which in turn requires that you understand the purpose of the cycle and the purpose of the program. So you build it up. It's like those Russian dolls. You know, you can unpack it as much as you want. But at a basic level, it's session, cycle, program. And if you understand the why of each of those three things, then you're in a good situation. And stick to them. So easy to get tempted out of those reasons. Yeah, but interestingly, don't stick to them so rigidly that you actually – Spite yourself. Well, I'm talking about is sticking to them in terms of intensity. So when you have yeah. that easy session, easy run on a Sunday, yeah. and you're running with your mate Mike, and he's pushing you too hard, yeah, you've got to say, "I'm not doing that." that yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so err on the side of caution, right? If you think you can go faster, don't. And if you think you can't go slower, try harder. It's like you know, you can always go a little bit slower. And I think most people would be better off slowing down a little bit. Yeah, right. Unless it's that really intense day once every ten or once a week. Then you must just pin your ears back and go for it, you know. Right. So that's the that's the other thing is to avoid that regression to the mean. I think yeah. is what we, yeah. not the mean, that's not the right word. Avoid that. Avoid bleeding yeah. into gray. Yeah. Like stay in the black, stay in the white, you know, right. stay in the red, stay in the green. But don't meet in the middle. Yeah. I think that's that's a, probably a second important concept. The third one is, um, gosh. I love the idea of RPE. I think one of the
1: most significant yeah, so things you said today is that Yes, there's a fascination around heart rate. There's power meters that you can get on the bike, all those sort of things. And they all have value. Anybody will who does and, and trains seriously will tell you they have value. Yeah. But more important, and I think, and I agree with you on this, and maybe I don't trust myself on this, understanding how you feel
2: on a day is actually quite a trustworthy way of managing stress and fatigue. Yes. Um, so, so that is, I mean, monitoring. I said that for John's marathon, the first thing we would do is we would get him to monitor what he's doing. And it's not just keep a diary of what he does, it's to monitor how he's feeling, like you know the aches and pains and the pattern recognition that we spoke about Glenn's tweet myself. So that would be like a golden rule of training. Again, and I know I'm sorry I'm repeating it, but it's important your goal is to eventually wean yourself off doing it like an <laughs> accountant bean counter because you want to be able to feel it. Yeah. But you won't learn to feel it until you do it. So you have to sacrifice and put in a little bit of time to first, in, you know, do the long division, as it were. Yeah. So that's a really important one. Then if we come back to John, the, the key thing is understand the end point. You know, like performance is the avoidance of fatigue, which is the disruption of homeostasis. So know what it is you're trying to achieve. John's goal ultimately is endurance. And that informs the training that he has to do, you know. And we spoke, and I hope people found interesting the mitochondrial stuff, the AMPK yeah. kinase, and and the capillaries, and all that sort of thing that make John a fat burning machine when he's <laughs> when he's running that marathon, as, as compared to now. So understand the demands of your event, and then I think the last one is like it's easy to forget as a scientist, but like the social psychological side of the training program is very important. We jokingly said that. If John finds himself in a group of people who's weaker than he is, he's, he's well off. Yeah. <laughs> and if he's in a group stronger, <laughs> right. then he's then he's heading for problems. But that social thing is important. Yeah. And I wouldn't want to embark on on a training program for anything without having company. Yeah. A because it's just more fun, and yeah. B because you can actually key off people. You know, sometimes you want if if John's doing his hard day, then I want him with faster runners. If he's doing his easy day, I want him with the slower ones. And I yeah. would try and keep people off all the yeah to use people they're using you too yes absolutely so. <laughs> yeah or or have people that are training on a similar plan to you
1: of a similar ability so yeah. when you you if you've got a bunch of guys training for a marathon or a, a hundred mile cycle race or something like that if everybody's on the same program of a similar ability and even if they're not of a similar ability if they all understand it's yeah. easy today they can work on wait on top of the hills whatever yeah. but it, it is important if you are serious about the training that you're doing that understanding intensity is a very key part of improving because otherwise you're going to improve but not at the rate that you probably could do.
2: Yeah, and then I think the last thing is this consistency. Now so many of you in your tweets said it as well and it's obviously important, you know. And as I said, I think the mistake a lot of people make, whether it be weight loss on diets, training, whatever it is, is they just give up too quickly. Yeah. So they're impatient and as a consequence they hurt their own consistency. And physiology really does. It. Sometimes it takes a while, you know. So, in other words, that um, twenty minutes a day of running, five days a week, is better than doing an hour and a half twice a week. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, obviously, you don't want to get stuck on the twenty no. minutes a day. We want that to be part of a plan. So, the consistency again applies to the big picture, the medium picture, and this and the smaller one. But that consistency is really very important, and try not to chop and change too much in the in the program, because I think the physiology you know when you understand the adaptations that are happening and the signals that are causing them you understand that actually it's just a question of exposure give your body the opportunity to send the signal to build the proteins to change your physiology change your enzymes your mitochondria your capillaries whatever it is your heart your heart volume is improving so many things we haven't even touched on
1: mm, yeah, but exactly. that, that
2: stuff's not that's not that's not happening like flicking a light switch you know so you have to really give it a little bit of time be patient and let physiology change at the pace that it wants to, you know. So the art always, for every single thing, there's a, there's a argument. Huh? So too much consistency becomes routine. So you've got to be agile enough and adaptable enough to, be, to change the training program where you yeah. see that it's not necessarily working. But you don't yeah. want to do that in a way that like, undermines all the consistency that mm-hmm. you possibly can. So this is why, fundamentally, what John probably wants is a coach. Um, who knows these but things he can and can be a self coach if he listens to this podcast No of course he can <laughs> but actually you know what? it's not a coach it's a it's an external set of eyes sometimes you can just yeah. add a little bit of perspective because it's very difficult even I mean I know all these principles but I train poorly when I train myself Yeah um and sometimes I need my mate Richard to say maybe just do this okay cool that's yeah. because we we struggle to and again, listen to your wife or your husband when they tell you that you've been cranky and unpleasant for two weeks. Yeah. That's probably not a good sign. Yeah. And that's the last one.
1: Well, there we go. Great advice from Professor Ross Tucker. I'm glad uh, we had a, some interesting, I think there's some principles here that I think most of you who understand a bit about training will say, yeah, I kind of know that, but you know, we always talk Then we always doubt ourselves when you talk about these sort of training principles. As usual, big, big thank you to Professor Ostaker. And uh, we'll be up next with our interview with Christine Schwanden on our next podcast. Listen up for that. Don't forget, you can interact with us at Sports SciPod on Twitter. And there was lots of discussions going on about that. If you want to add anything to this conversation, we would love to hear you. But for now, it's
2: goodbye. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at Sports Sci-Pod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast.
0: Hold up.